If you came to the banquet last night, you might have been expecting this. So, I'm your friendly neighborhood preacher today. Last night I was Ross. Today my son informed me on the way to church that I looked like Super Mario without a mustache. So right now I'm as confused as a homeless man on house arrest. I don't know who I am. So um, you guys just bear with us and we'll make it through it. But you know, last night we had a good time at the banquet. Thank you, everybody who made it, and for those who worked so hard to put it together. Learned a couple things last night about some people. First of all, we learned that Sister Erica was not always into gospel music. <laughs> the lady knows her old stuff, and she can, she can bellow it out really well. So that was very entertaining, and uh, learned a lot about her last night. And then we learned about Brother Nathan. We're always learning things about him. He is, a, he is a gift that keeps on giving. We learned that for the last 25 years, he's been living in guilt. Apparently, the first time he proposed to Sister Beth, he didn't do it right. And so he felt like he needed to do it again last night. And I told him he made the rest of us look bad because not all of us have the voice that he has to pull off what he pulled off last night. So um, ladies, don't be expecting that. But see, I, I took a different approach. See, when I proposed to my wife, I had to use a little strategy. I mean, look at her and look at me, right? So um, I, I made sure that I annoyed and embarrassed her enough that she would not want a second round of that, right? So um, I made sure there was so much peer pressure. She had to say yes, and then I didn't give her time to back out. So she stuck with me, right? So And Nathan didn't get to hear any of that, so that's all right. That's what happens, you know, when you goof off. But, uh, but no, we had a great time last night, and it was precious to see Brother Nathan and Sister Beth renew their vows, and uh, so that was awesome. So um, that was exciting, and if you missed it, I'm sorry, but, uh, um, you know, as we, um, as we, as I was thinking about yesterday when Brother Justin texted me, I'm always nervous when that happens, because <laughs> I never, I never feel adequate to do this, um, and certainly with Brother Corey and Brother... Justin, there's some big shoes to fill uh, when it comes to uh, filling in for those guys. Um, I am not the young, hip, cool Justin. I cannot deliver the way he does. And I am certainly not the insightful alpha that Brother Corey is. Now, I'm, I'm the alpha at home on the days that she allows me to be. But at church, there's only one alpha, and that's got to be Brother Corey. And, of course... <laughs> And, of course, Brother Jerry, he's just so sweet, there's no way I can be that. So, um, so you get the potluck today. You know, whatever I am, that's what it is today. I don't even know anymore. So, I was praying about this yesterday and asking God, you know, what I should do. And, and I, I was praying and thinking about a lot of different things, studying. And uh, this is the only thing I really had liberty to do. And I'm going to tell you, this is very different than what you're used to at this church. Um, Knowing that I'm only going to be preaching one time, I can't do a verse-by-verse -verse breakdown of a book like Brother Justin and Brother Corey love to do. So I just jumped to a topic because topics are something we can cover in one service. And um, this is something that's been on my mind for a while. And the reason for that is, um, we'll, we'll get to it in a minute, but when we talk about what is your legacy? So a legacy is something that we leave behind, right? When you look up Webster's Dictionary, it's something that's transmitted by or received from an ancestor or predecessor from the past. So a legacy is something that we're passing down. When we think about this today, 
when we die, we're going to have a headstone or tombstone. And on that, there's going to be two dates. There's going to be a birth date when you were born, and there's going to be a day when you died. And in between that is a little line. And that little line is your life. And whatever that little line tells, whatever that story is, that's your legacy. What are people going to remember you by? What legacy are you leaving behind for your children, for your grandchildren, for your neighbors, for your coworkers, for the people here in this church? What is your legacy? Does anybody know what this is? This is something that started February the 8th up in Kentucky at a university called Asbury. It's a revival that broke out. It's still going on. It started with just a chapel service. They have them three times a week at this college. And apparently from the, from, from the testimonies that I've heard, it started with one young man basically. He said he felt God calling him to go to the altar. So he had to drop his pride. He had to become humble in front of all of his peers. He went forward, and then he started confessing some stuff. And then after the service, most of them stayed. They didn't want to leave. And it's just been going on and on and on now since February the 8th. Because all it took was one person that decided, I'm going to be different. I'm going to throw away what everybody else thinks about me. I don't care. I'm just going to follow what the Spirit's calling me to do. Now, I'm not there. I've watched some of the clips. I've listened to some of the testimony. I don't know what's happening there. All I know is they're giving the praise and the honor and glory to God, whatever it is. And so I started thinking about legacy. This young man had no clue when he stepped forward that this is probably going to be his legacy. And what an awesome legacy that would be, that he encouraged people. And people are flying in from all over the world now to attend these services. I mean, literally from all over the world. What a testimony. What a legacy this young man is going to leave behind. Young people, don't ever think that you can't do something important. Because all it takes is one thing. But you've got to understand, it can't be about you. It's got to be about him. Didn't we just sing, is he worthy? Certainly he is. Because we are bought and paid for. We belong to him. He is worthy because of what he's done for us. So in return, what are we going to do with what he's given us? What is going to be our legacy? So this is a quote. Now, I don't put much stock in Ralph Waldo Emerson. He was, he was an ordained theologian, but his doctrine was so messed up. But he said, the purpose of life is not to be happy. It is to be useful, to be honorable, to be compassionate, to have it make some difference that you have lived and lived well. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with what he said here. I disagree with the premise. This is not our purpose in life. But I think that we should be useful. I think we should be honorable in our life. We certainly should be compassionate. And we definitely want to make sure that we're making a difference, hopefully a positive difference, right? But when we go to Scripture, what does Scripture say about our purpose in life? Well, we go to Psalm 78, 1 through 7, it says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. For He has established a testimony in Jacob 
and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Did you get that? Why do we push it a lot around this church? Something called discipleship. What is discipleship? It's this. Making sure that we're taking what God has given us and sharing that with others so that they can share it with others so that they can share it with others. And so when we look in the book of Psalms, this tells us what our legacy should look like. Our legacy should be one where we are sharing what God has given us, showing the praises of the Lord, showing His strength and His wonderful works, sharing that with our children so they can share it with their children, and so on and so forth. We're to keep reproducing what God has already done. Just like God brought the children out of, the, out of Egypt, took them through the wilderness, God said, don't forget what I've done. And you need to be telling this to your children and their children. The sad thing is, is you, you, you get through a little more of the Old Testament and you find out there was a generation that didn't know God. How, is that How does that happen? Because somebody dropped the ball and their legacy was not what it was supposed to be. God has given all of us a life. God has given all of us talents and skills and abilities. They're all different. And God says, what are you going to do with it? And Brother Corey likes to quote this a lot. To whom much is given, much is required. That is a scary thought. When you think about what God has given us here in America, what God has given us in this church, and I ask you, what are you doing with what you have? Because that is your legacy. It's a, it's very, it's a very important thing that we should be focused on. So real quick, I'm just going to do a word association. You, I'm not asking you to call these out, but I just want you to think, when I pop these, in, and to put this in context, these are all biblical names, and I'm sure when I pop these up, there are immediately going to be some thoughts pop into your head with these names. Joseph. I'm sure if we went around the room, we could hear a lot of things about Joseph. Abraham, another well-known person. We could just rattle some things off about him. Moses. David, Solomon, Jonah, Noah. And this last one, definitely use your inside voice for this one, your spouse, okay? <laughs> we could all rattle some things off about our spouses, right? So, why, why, is this, why, is this, why did I do this? To get you to understand that when somebody says your name, there's something that pops up in their head because that's what they know you by, whatever that is. Good, bad, indifferent, doesn't matter. You are known by something by everybody. Like we've always told our children, always be careful what you do because always, always, always there's somebody watching you. Whether you want them to or not, it doesn't matter. They're always watching you. And what they see is what's going to be what you're known as, and that's going to end up being your legacy if you're not careful, Right? So why does our legacy really matter? Why are we spending time on this? 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 15 says, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. 
But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. See, those who have gone before us, we talked about Brother Garland Odom, right? People who have come before us, they've laid a foundation. The foundation that hopefully we're all building on is Jesus Christ. At some point in our life, whenever that was, somebody introduced us to Christ. Whether through church or through a sermon you heard on the radio or whatever, maybe a friend, a family member introduced you to Christ somehow. They gave you a foundation to build upon. And God says, you need to take that foundation and build upon it, but be careful how you build upon that. So I know in our world, in our, in our society today, we have this mindset that it's my life, I can do what I want to, and you don't have a right to tell me what I can and can't do. And that's the prevailing thought in our world today. But you know, that's not scriptural at all. We have a foundation. We are bought. We are paid for. We belong to Him. We no longer belong to ourselves. God gave us a foundation that we have to build upon and keep building upon because others are watching, and we're to, we're to pass that along to others. Again, discipleship, sharing that with others, not just with, within our home. And sometimes I struggle with that. As a dad, as a husband, I struggle. Where is that balance? Because I definitely got to provide for my wife and my children and be that example. But I'm also commanded to go out and do it with others as well. And sometimes I've seen people get too far one way or the other. I've seen people lose their families because they got so gung-ho for God that they forgot their families. That's not biblical. The first thing God ever instituted in His Word was marriage. And if you put everything else above that, that's not biblical. And I've seen so many preachers and people over the years lose their families because they get gung-ho for God, and they go out and try to win everybody else, and they totally lose their family. There's got to be a proper balance to this thing. But we have to be careful how we build upon that foundation that's already been laid for us. We go to Daniel 7.10. It says, A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousands ministered unto him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was said in the books were open. So for context, for those who don't know this passage, there's a vision. And Daniel's, Daniel's, God's showing Daniel this vision, and he's showing him the kingdoms of the world. And at the end, Jesus is coming on the scene, and he's, he's called the Ancient of Days, talking about God. He's going to come on the scene, and that's where verse 10 picks up. And it says, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. And you think about it, thousands, thousands ministered on him. That would be a million at a, at a minimum. And then 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. That's 100 million. And it says the judgment was set and the books were open. Then you go to Revelation 20 and 12. It says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open and another book was open, which is the book of life. 
and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. You know, you're not just telling your story for those people here. God is recording your life story there. So what you do here will follow you into eternity. Brother Corey has mentioned this many times from this pulpit. And he, a couple of years ago, he preached a sermon on the judgment seat of Christ. And it was the best presentation I've ever heard of the judgment seat of Christ. And it was very thought-provoking because it made you realize how inadequate we are and how scary it's going to be to stand before Christ. Because so many of us are going to stand before Him partially clothed. And if you were here, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> For those who weren't here, don't think naked. We're not naked, naked, but... You know, there are some robes of righteousness which we are building while we're here, which is part of our legacy. That's going to follow us into eternity. So why is our legacy important? Because it doesn't just apply to now. It applies to eternity. So the position that you're going to have during the thousand-year reign of Christ is going to be based on the legacy you leave here. So think about that. That's pretty scary. What have we done with our lives? And how does that compare to, to eternity and what does that qualify us for? I mean, if we're submitting a resume for, for a job in the millennial reign of Christ, what is it going to be on that resume? What is, what is Jesus going to look at it and say, hey, I don't have much to work with here. <laughs> you didn't do a whole lot. So, you know, we'll just send you back to Villarica and you can, you can, you know, be a whatever. You know, I don't know. I don't even know what the position you're going to be during the millennial reign of Christ. The world will continue on and, and we'll have a position there. But it's going to be based on the legacy that we have here. So let's quickly go through some of these delightful legacies that we see in the Word of God that people left behind. So Abel, he left behind a legacy of faith and obedience. Genesis 4, 4 says, And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock into the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Then we go to Hebrews 11, 4 says, By faith, Brother Jerry's been teaching this in the Sunday school, uh, the, the, the Hall of Faith, right? By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he, is, he being dead, yet speaketh. How much do we know about Abel? We know about three or four things. That's all the Bible tells us. We know he was the son of Adam and Eve. We know he was the younger brother of Cain. According to this, we know he brought a more excellent sacrifice to God and that he was righteous. Other than that, that's all we know about Abel. God doesn't record much. But how cool is it the thing that is recorded is that he was a righteous man and that he offered a more excellent sacrifice. Oh, that that would be my testimony when I stand before God. That God would say, yeah, he offered a more excellent sacrifice. What would that sacrifice be? Me. We're to be a living sacrifice. We're to die daily and leave a legacy behind that would cause others to want to follow suit. 1 Samuel 15, 22, we have a principle established here, thanks to Saul. It says, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken in the fat of rams. This happened in Samuel. But this was a principle that Abel understood back in Genesis. It was all about obedience. 
We have shared this with our children many times over the years. Sometimes when they weren't obedient, we would throw the scripture out at them. Because if you continue on with this, it also says that rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. So we'd say, you're a witch, right? Because you're being rebellious. But, but Abel understood this concept that obedience was more important than the sacrifice. But he did both. So Abel's obedience cost him his physical life. You know, there's this mindset out there. There's these people in churches that teach, if you live right for God, everything will prosper. I don't know what Bible they're reading, but I don't find that in my Bible. Matter of fact, I find just the opposite. Most of the time when you sacrifice and live for God, life is not going to be rosy and peachy. You're not just going to tiptoe through the tulips, so to speak, right? Abel committed one act that we know of, and it cost him his life. But what a way to go. He went out with a wonderful legacy, a beautiful testimony. What about Abraham? Such a legacy of faith. Romans 4.3, For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Hebrews 11.8. Jumping ahead of you, brother. You had to... By faith, Abraham... When he was called to go out, nobody's going to remember it anyway. So, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whether he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. You know what I find out about Abraham? He's very interesting. Because we see twice God records that... Abraham was a man of faith, but we know at least three times he was not a man of faith. And that's why we had this whole mess in the Middle East, for one. And the other two, he basically lied and had his wife taken away from him because he was scared, right? He was not the alpha male, that's for sure, okay? But yet God saw him as a man of faith because he committed two acts of faith. One, he stepped out and went to a country that he'd never been to, a strange land. And then when he was there, he was willing to offer his only son. I don't know why he calls him his only son, because he wasn't his only son, but the Bible says his son Isaac, he was willing to offer him. Two acts of faith is all it took to get Abraham labeled as a man of faith. Think about that. That's pretty cool. It gives us hope. It doesn't require a whole lot. If it only takes two acts of faith, we could probably accomplish that, couldn't we? A lot of us have probably already had two acts of faith. Maybe we had to trust God for some financial situation in the past, or maybe we had to trust Him for some health issues, and we've already shown that we've, we've had faith. So that gives us hope, right? You, you study a man like Abraham, but when you study Abraham and then you study Isaac, you see Isaac repeated the same pattern that his dad repeated, don't you? Because that was his legacy. Be careful because your legacy will continue to follow long after you're gone. But his faith birthed the nation and gave us a lineage for Christ to come. How awesome is that? What about Phineas? Not as well known as some of these others. But Phineas had a legacy of zeal. Numbers 25, 7 through 13. And when Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. So just set, set stage for those who haven't read this story before. Israel had committed whoredoms. 
they were intermixing with the Moabites. They were taking them for wives and giving their sons to them and, and mixing and, and worshiping their gods and sacrificing and all kind of horrific stuff that God had told them not to do. God was angry with them, and God sent a plague. And the plague was going through the land, killing everybody. And as they're standing there, there's an Israelite man with a Moabite woman runs in front of Moses and, and Phineas into a tent to go do their thing. And Phineas sees this. And then in verse 8, it says, And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And those that died in the plague were twenty and four thousand. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel while he was zealous for my sake among them, that I consume not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Wherefore say, Behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace, and he shall have it and his seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made an atonement for the children of Israel. One act that was recorded for him, it was an act of just absolute zealousness for God. He took that one instance and he took a stand and was willing to do what needed to be done to stop the plague. There's going to be times in our life we're going to need to take a stand, guys. We just can't tiptoe through the tulips and expect, oh, well, I'm saved on my way to heaven. I'll just let everybody else worry about that. We live in a world where we need to be taking a stand because our society is going totally opposite of where it should be going. I mean, in some of this stuff, I just shake my head. I'm like, how can you be so ignorant? When we can't even decide if you're a male or female, how stupid can you be? Really? Sometimes God's going to call us to take a hard stand, and sometimes you have to stand against friends and family. I've had to do that throughout my life. There are times I've had to take a stand against even family members because I wasn't going to move the ancient landmarks. I wasn't willing to make those compromises. Are you willing to make those tough stands? Are you willing to step out and say, God, I got the javelin. Who do I need to kill today? And I don't mean literally. But most of the time, that javelin needs to start right here. We need to kill ourselves and get ourselves out of the way. Again, we have to die daily. Now, I know there's some of you probably had somebody popping your head as soon as I said that, that you would like to stick that javelin in. But that's not what God called us to do. Called us to kill self first, and then he'll take care of the rest. Vengeance of the mind says, Lord, I will repay. Psalms 106.30, we see that this story is repeated again. Then stood up Phineas and executed judgment, and so the plague was stayed, and that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. His legacy became known because of that one act of being zealous for God. You know, it always breaks my heart when I see these young people make it, you know, usually in acting or music, they get stardom early in life. And it's almost 99% of the time, probably even higher than that, they all end up the same. Their lives are ruined. They sell out to Satan in the world for a little fame and riches. Why is that? 
why can't it be the other way around? Why can't it be 99% of the time they say, you know what? I'm going to use my talent for God. I'm going to glorify Him. I'm going to praise Him. Why is it that they always go the other route? Because that's the legacy they've been given by others that have come before them. And that's the way we should do it because we've always done it this way. Why not be different? I used to tell my children all the time, dare to be different. Don't just follow the crowd. God made you an individual. Don't just be like everybody else. It's okay to be different. Be like Phineas. Do something different. Just like this revival that broke out at Asbury, somebody decided to do something different. We come in here week after week after week, we go through these routines and nothing ever changes. Why not? The book of James talks about people who, they know the truth, they hear it, but they never do anything with it. It's kind of a waste. But we see Phineas, his zeal spared a nation. It also allowed him to receive an everlasting priesthood and covenant of peace. What about the Shunammite woman? Her legacy was that of servitude. 2 Kings 4, 8 through 10. And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunam, where it was a great woman, not just a woman, but a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread, and so it was, that as oft as he passed by, he turned in there to eat bread. And she said unto her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is an holy man of God, which passeth by us continually. Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall, and let us set for him there a bed, and a table, and a stool, and a candlestick, and it shall be, when he cometh to us, that he shall turn in thither. Her act of service was rewarded with a son and a blessed husband. She had no children. But because of one act, she saw a need. A man of God came through all the time, had nowhere to stay, and she took him in. And that one act of servitude brought blessings on her and her, and her husband. You know, that's why the Bible tells us in, I think, Hebrews 13, be careful that we entertain strangers because in doing so, sometimes you entertain angels unaware. Don't just turn a blind eye when you see somebody in need. God may just be testing you to see if you really care about your legacy or is it all about what you want and what's convenient for you. Now, I throw this out here. Please use caution with this. Okay, especially you ladies. I'm not saying you see some homeless man walking, you know, you pull over and help him. You be very prayerful about that and let the Holy Spirit lead you. But always be available and ready when the Spirit draws you to do that. I'm not saying just blindly go out there and just approach everybody you see. That's, that's not wise. But also always be ready to let the Spirit lead you into those situations. I think back in my time, my life, and there I know at least one or two times I believe that happened to me. And one time, I flunked miserably. <laughs> my wife and I, we were at Lake Tahoe on our anniversary trip. We try to find somewhere every year to go for our anniversary, and we were at Lake Tahoe, and we went to a little shopping mall to get some stuff. And she was in shopping and doing something, and I saw this homeless man out on the on the area there and he had his dog and the Holy Spirit just kept telling me go talk to this guy go talk to this guy but you know I didn't want to be inconvenienced we're on vacation I'm keeping up with my wife 
And we go about our thing, and we get in the car, and we drive down the road about a mile, and I just turn around. Tim's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I've got to go back and talk to this guy. It's like God is just telling me to do this. I go back, and the man was nowhere to be found. I mean, nowhere. We looked, and we looked, and there's no way. He couldn't have got away that, that, that far unless he had a car waiting, and he wasn't really a homeless man. I don't know. But to this day, I still wonder if, if that was something that I'm, I, I dropped the ball on, that God just put that person there to see if I was going to be willing to listen to the Spirit. And that bothers me even to this day, that I dropped the ball on that. Because you never know what God is doing in our lives. And that's why it's so important that we focus on these things. What about the woman who anointed Jesus? She had a legacy of love. It's recorded in Matthew and Mark. And we'll look at Mark's edition just for time's sake. Mark 14.3, And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment, a finger very precious, and she broke the box and poured it on his head. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Sorry for those who are OCD. I, I, I skipped a few verses there for time's sake. Um, so it starts out with she, she anointed Jesus, and then you drop down to verse 9, and it says that because she did this act of love and anointing Jesus for his burial, wherever this story is told, it's going to be a memorial for her. What a legacy. She was one act of love is all it took. But it left us an example to live by, and it got her honorable mention in the Bible and a memorial. And I don't know why this is important, but it's just one of those things that I noticed, that each time her story is told, it's told in seven verses. Because <laughs> seven represents completion, right? What about the lad who gave his lunch? Legacy of sacrifice. John 6, 9. There's a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? You know, a lot of us take, you probably sit there week after week, and you say, yeah, well... I can't do this, I can't do that, I don't have this, I don't have that. Well, what do you have? What do you have? This lad just had a small lunch, enough to feed one little boy, and he was willing to give that up so that Jesus could use it to be a blessing to many. I think so many times Satan keeps us down by convincing us that we're not worth anything. And that we have nothing to offer. But can I tell you by the word of God, you do. All of us can be available for something. If nothing else, we can pray. That's not a hard thing. We all have something we bring to the table. And whatever that is, that's going to be your legacy. What are you doing with that? His sacrifice fed 5,000 men plus women and children. And we can speculate all day long how many that is. It doesn't really matter. The point is, he was willing to do something other people couldn't do. And his story is still told today. So I'm going to ask a question. What do the last three people we just talked about have in common? Anybody paying attention? What's that? Bingo. We don't know who they are. We don't know their name. Why is that? Because it's not important. They committed selfless acts, and God wanted to record that. Who they were wasn't important. What they did was important. Who you are is not important. What you do is important. 
they all committed selfless acts. They weren't thinking about themselves. They were thinking about others. And they got recorded in God's history book. It's amazing how much can be accomplished when no one cares who gets the credit. I've heard this throughout my, my career. Okay? You hear it in the corporate world. You hear it in churches. You know, we could get a lot more accomplished if we would follow this rule. But people have egos, and they want those egos stroked constantly. They want to be recognized for what they do. And I've seen people use this in different ways in churches, in the corporate world. They understand this about people, and so if they want to get something accomplished, they'll start stroking egos. Because <laughs> if you start stroking egos, people will start volunteering because they want to be in the limelight. But you know, that's really not a biblical principle, right? It's not about us. It's about Him. Everything we do should be focusing the energy, the honor, the glory on Him. What about the four men who carried a sick man to Jesus, sick with palsy? They had a legacy of friendship and faith. Mark 2, 1 through 5, and again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house, and straightway many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door, and he preached the word unto them. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Okay, so one thing. You see somebody in need, you're willing to give them a ride or whatever. But they went the extra mile. They could have just brought him to the door and dropped him off and said, okay, you're on your own. Good luck. But no, when they got there, what did they find? They find that they couldn't even get to Jesus because there were so many people already there. So they schemed. And they said, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take him up on the roof. We're going to tear the roof apart. And we're going to lower him down right in the middle. How many of us would put that extra effort into helping somebody? Somebody calls and says, hey, I need help with this. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll come, you know, I'll come over and see what I can do for you. And you, you go over there and you do your due diligence. Yeah, sorry, not a whole lot I can do for you. Uh, and you move on, right? How many of us would take and go the extra mile to help somebody in need? You see a need and you're willing to do what it takes to get the job done. So many times I think we stop short of the goal because we're not willing to do what it takes to finish the job, okay? These four men went the extra mile. But notice in verse 5 what it says. It didn't say the faith of the man with the palsy that healed him. It was their faith that Jesus looked upon that allowed him to be healed. So their faith got their friend healed and became a testimony to others. There's a big difference between a handout and a helping hand. One is charity, the other is friendship. And I, and I mention this because we live in a society today where everybody feels entitled. You owe me. You owe me. I deserve. I deserve this craziness of reparations for something that happened 150, 200 years ago that has no bearing on anything today. Creates this entitlement mentality. What happened? Everybody just working hard with your own hands, providing for yourselves. What's wrong with that concept? I know it's old-fashioned, but it still works. Reminds me of a man that went to his son's graduation. 
And after the graduation, he walks up to his son. He shook his hand. He says, son, I'm so proud of you, and I just want you to know if you ever need a helping hand, there will always be one at the end of your arm. <laughs> if we could just get that message out to more people, right? It's okay to help those in that need help. That's what we're called to do. But it is not okay for those people to keep asking for help. At some point, like my, my granny used to say, every tub has to sit on its own bottom, right? you you, you got to start doing your own thing, right? All right, so let's do another word association. Cain, Achan, Judas, Esau, Korah. Any of these bring up any ideas in your head? Well, these are what I call disastrous legacies. Cain, what's his legacy? He's known as a murderer. That's probably the first thing that popped in your mind, right? When, when I popped this up, Cain was a murderer. He killed his own, his own brother because of his self-willed and his rebellion. Genesis 4, 3 through 6, and, and then we'll jump down to verse 8. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel, he also brought of the first things of his flock and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? And Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And you go to 1 John 3.12, it says, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him, because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way which seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are ways of death. A lot of people look at the story of Cain and say, I don't understand what, what, was, what was wrong with what he did. I mean, he brought an offering to God. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? The problem is, is he did it his way instead of God's way. God had already established the proper way of sacrificing was through a blood sacrifice that started with his mom and dad because they sinned. There had to be blood shed for that sin. Abel obviously understood it, but Cain chose to do it his own way. And that's the problem in our world today. You, you, you see this in churches everywhere. People say, well... God really didn't mean that. Well, that's not really what the word means there. There's a way which seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death, as Cain proved. All Cain had to do was follow God's simple plan for a sacrifice. That's all he had to do. But no, he chose to do it his own way, just like we choose to serve God our own way because we, we think we're smarter than the word of God. And we choose not to do what it says because we're going to do it our way because society says we can do what we want to. And because we have liberty, we're Christians, we have liberty, we can do all of these things. But be careful with that because that thinking is what leads to disaster. Do you want that to be your legacy? You ever notice how you can do a hundred acts of kindness do one bad thing and that's what people remember? Isn't that weird? You can spend your whole life trying to do right and then you do one thing wrong and that's what people remember about you. That's why it's so important to think about everything that we do and what kind of legacy that's going to leave behind. Cain was cursed and his legacy was one of a murderer. 
1 John 3.15, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Because a lot of you say, well, Brother Rodney, I would never go out and kill somebody. Really? According to this verse, if we hate our brother, we're a murderer. So think about that from a spiritual application. Do we love our brothers? Is there somebody we just can't stand? Maybe we need to pray about that. That's why we're always praying for unity in this church. Because if we don't, we're going to be in trouble. There's enough discord out in the, in the world. We don't need to bring it into the church. Amen. What about Esau? Self-preservation. Genesis 25 and 32. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? Hebrews 12, 16. And we know the story. He went on and sold his birthright because he was hungry. He gave it up to, to his brother. But Hebrews 12, 16 says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Malachi 1.3, And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Now, we can debate all day long about Malachi and Romans here. As it is written, Jacob, have I loved, Esau, have I hated. Is God talking about the person or the land? We don't have time to go into that. I would err on the side of the land part because God is long-suffering. And if you read that whole context in Romans 9, you'll kind of come to that conclusion. However, the point is, that one act of Esau not taking his heritage serious and the legacy he had been given, he threw it all away for some food. What are we willing to throw our testimony away for? I've seen this time and time again in my Christian life. People throw their testimony away over the dumbest things. And it's usually related to the dollar. Why are we so willing to sacrifice the heritage, the legacy, the foundation that has been given to us for something as stupid as a dollar bill? But yet I see it time and time and time again. There's a biblical principle here, Mark 8, 35 through 38. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me... And of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's a principle here that applies to us just like Esau, self-preservation. If we're not careful, if we're ashamed of his words, we're basically doing the same thing Esau did. Just throwing his heritage away, the foundation that was laid for him. What about Achan? Self-satisfaction, Joshua 6.19. But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come in the treasure of the Lord. God tells them they're getting ready to go in and invade Jericho. He said, when you go into Jericho, everything is consecrated to me. You bring it back to me. Don't take of the accursed stuff. We know this man Achan. He goes in. He disobeys God. We go to Joshua 7, verse 20. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And thus and thus have I done when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight. Then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. Achan's action cursed his whole family, his nation, caused 36 men to die, and his legacy was one of greed. How sad. Korah, last one here. Self-righteous. This one's dangerous. 
Number 16, Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Heleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown, and they gathered themselves together against Moses, against Aaron, and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them. Well, that's a joke right there. Have you read the history of Israel? And the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. And the earth opened her mouth. So you jump down, drop down to verse 32. Here's the consequences. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up in their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods. They and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit and the earth closed upon them and they perished from among the congregation. And all Israel that were round about them fled at the cry of them for they said, lest the earth swallow us up also. And there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that had offered incense. Korah's self-righteous attitude led many to their death and cost him and his family their lives. We have to be careful. We're in a church where you get fed constantly a lot of knowledge on the Word of God. Many in here know a lot. You have a lot of knowledge about what the Bible says. And if we're not careful, that knowledge can go to our head. This is why in my mid to late 20s, I became anti-seminary in theological schools because I have seen so many good godly men and women go off to seminary trying to, to, to learn how to study the Bible and, and live for God, and they come out worthless because a little knowledge went to their head and puffed them up. We find that in 1 Corinthians 8.1. It says, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And we even see that Paul, one of the greatest you know, writers of the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 12.7, he said, And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. If anybody could have boasted and bragged, it could have been Paul. God showed him a lot of revelations, shared things with him that he didn't share with anybody else, and it could have went to his head. But even Paul struggled with this and says, hey, God had to give me a thorn in the flesh to keep me humble. How many times have you seen that? I've seen this in the corporate world. I've seen it in churches. People, because they have some letters after their name, they're the expert and they are God's gift to mankind. Let me tell you, I'm an expert. I have a PhD. Whoop-dee-doo. And that sickens me when I see that in a church. I deal with it in the corporate world all the time, but it should not be in the church. I've seen churches, when they're looking for pastors, one of the first requirements they say is he's got to have a degree from a Bible college. I'm like, uh, show me that in the Word of God. Show me one verse in the Word of God that says that. I can't find that. That is not a qualification to be a pastor of a church. The Bible certainly gives us some qualifications, but that's not on the list. When I read my Bible, it says that God is the giver of wisdom and knowledge and understanding, not some man-made secular system. And I'm sorry, you know, if you believe in seminary, I'm going to disagree with you all day long on that. I'm not against going to a Bible college. 
to get an education in a Christian environment. That's okay. But to go to Bible college to get a degree to, in, in, in Scripture and, and understand Hebrew and Greek and all that other nonsense, I'm against that because it puffs you up. And you think that you know something now. As most of us can testify, the longer I walk this walk, the less I know. When I was in my 20s, I was puffed up all the time. I knew everything. I had an answer for everything. You asked me anything about the Bible, I could tell you. I was wrong about most of it, but back then I thought I knew it all, right? Now you ask me, I have no clue, right? I don't know because the more I study, the more I realize without Him, I know nothing, right? It's all about Him. So interesting trivia real quick as we're wrapping up here. I know it's easier when you have a sheet follow because you can tell when the end's coming. I, I didn't have time to do that for you, so sorry. Um, but some interesting trivia. Knowledge doubled approximately every 100 years from the 1700s to the 1900s. It doubled approximately every 25 years from 1945 to the early 2000s. Currently, knowledge is doubling every 18 months. And in the very near future, and there's a debate whether it's the next three, five, or eight years, we're going to be doubling knowledge as a human race every 12 hours. Is that scary? The problem is most of the knowledge is useless. But it consumes our time. And it causes us to feel like we have arrived. Right? It's like the scientists came before God one day and said, God, we have figured out how to clone man. We don't need you anymore. And God says, oh, really? Show me. Well, then the scientist reaches down to get some dust. And God says, whoa, 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 whoa. Create your own dust. See, man thinks he's arrived because he has a little bit of book knowledge. Where did that book knowledge come from? From another man. From another man. From another man who thought they knew something. When you think about the world of academia, it's really kind of silly, right? Because you're just regurgitating what somebody who came before you said was right, even if it's wrong. And as long as you regurgitate it and give them the answer they want to hear, oh, you're an expert now. You're an expert in something that never existed, but hey, you're an expert. Feel good about yourself. Get all puffed up. Get all the accolades. Now, I'm not against education. Don't get me wrong. But it's got to be in the proper context. And understand, when you get knowledge, God didn't give you that knowledge to waste on foolishness. The knowledge is to be used for His honor and His glory to further His kingdom. So final thoughts. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Is that a scary thing? You may be keeping a diary of your life, but you know what? God knows everything. He knows every thought, every imagination of our hearts, and it's being recorded in heaven. And when we stand before God, those books are going to be opened, and we're going to be judged out of those books. 2 Peter 3.11 Seeing then that the, all these things, talking about when Christ comes back during the tribulation period, at the end he comes back, but during the tribulation period you know the heavens are going to be burnt, the earth is going to be consumed with all these plagues and all these disasters. It says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God? And Brother Corey has mentioned this many times. The word conversation there is not just what comes out of our mouth. It's our life. What we live is communicating, right? So, got to be careful with that. It's the action, not the fruit of the action, that's important. 
you have to do the right thing. It may not be in your power. It may not be in your time that there'll be any fruit. But that doesn't mean you stop doing the right thing. You may never know what results come from your actions, but if you do nothing, there will be no results. Now, I agree with most of that. That last part I don't agree with because even if you do nothing, there will still be results because God's recording that nothingness and there will have to be an answer given for that. Now, we're not going to answer for our sins. Don't get me wrong. If you're saved, you're saved. Our sins are washed away, never to be remembered. But the works, our actions after we get saved, those are the things we're going to have to stand and give an account for when we stand before God at judgment seat. And if you're lost, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you're going to be at the great white throne of God, and that's a different judgment. And that one's going to be horrible. And unfortunately, we'll have to be a witness to that. And there's probably going to be people there that are there because of us. And I think that's why God has to wipe away all tears after that because we're going to have to be casting some people into the lake of fire, the people that God put in our paths that we refused to share the gospel with. Scary thought, isn't it? I know we're all saved. We're going to heaven. That's great. But that's just where the story starts. What is that legacy going to look like when you get to heaven? Again, it's not about just what's going on here in the now. What we do here now carries on into eternity. And so we need to be focused on that legacy while we're here so that we have something to look forward to when we get there. And with that, we're going to ask them to come up and get a song. This altar is going to be open. If you feel led of the Holy Spirit to come and, and get something right or maybe pray for a friend or family member, whatever the Lord leads you to do, this altar is open and you guys just do as the Holy Spirit leads you.